Welcome to episode 12 of the Dollars and Doctor Show. I'm your host, Kirthi Javarn, founder and financial planner at White Coat Financial. Today, I'm privileged to host Dr. Rabi Banawal, who's a GP practicing out of Mississauga, Ontario. She's also the vice president and clinical director of Viva City Medical Center. Dr. Banawal primarily works at two clinics, one which is a traditional family practice, and the other is Viva City Medical Center, where she focuses on providing high-quality healthcare services in the areas of aesthetic medicine, anti-aging, and sexual health. We talked about Dr. Banawal's path to medical school, residency, and her eventual choice to practice in Canada instead of the United States. We also discussed the future of medical aesthetics, mental health, and the importance of weighing social factors when diagnosing in medicine. Join me today as we learn more about Dr. Banawal's journey and what the future holds for her. Exactly where you grew up and sort of your life between, you know, when you were born all the way up to leading up to undergrad. Okay. So I actually grew, um, actually born and raised in Etobicoke and uh, parents eventually moved over to Brampton. And then, you know, I went off to school and they now have officially um, relocated to Caledon, um, which is nice. But my early childhood years, I would say, were not the easiest. Um, you know, my father, you know, it was a typical immigrant story, very inspiring. You know, he came here from India and, you know, did engineering back home. Here he was a taxi driver, then a truck driver, and the typical story. We didn't have a whole lot of money growing up. You know, I remember a lot of my birthday presents were from played against sports um, because that's all he could afford, but it was still, you know, so amazing that he was able to give me what I wanted with, uh, you know, the capacity that he had and considering his circumstances. And, you know, at the same time, my mom, you know, had a cancer diagnosis and she was sick and going through that. So that sort of molded me in terms of what I wanted to do twofold. On the one hand, I wanted to be financially secure because I did not grow up with financial security. And the second thing was I, you know, wanted to help people and I wanted to get into medicine. And a lot of it was really the interactions I saw between my mom and our family doctor. And that sort of shaped me because he would give her hope. And, you know, as sad as it was, and as much as she knew what was happening and can kind of foreshadow what her, you know, prognosis was and how much time she had, I think a lot of it was really just those conversations with the doctor. They 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 still gave her hope and they sort of allowed her to just keep living day by day. And so what I started doing was, you know, really trying to see, do I want to do medicine and solidify that or do I want to go into something else? And so I ended up doing a lot of volunteer and co-op during high school and university in hospital settings, retirement homes, clinic settings, and just really trying to determine all the different healthcare settings and if this is truly what I wanted to do, because it is a very long road. And there were moments where I was like, okay, should I do physical therapy? Should I you know, be a PhD and just do a professor, um, become a professor because I did do a master's program. But then for some reason, I always just went back to medicine. And I was just thinking, you know, my mom sat me down and because my dad, um, I have like, I have an amazing mother, my dad, we married and she's absolutely wonderful. And she sat me down and she's like, you know, in 10 years, will you be happy with this decision? If you're going to go the PhD or the physical therapist route, or are you always going to look back and think, oh, I, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda. And so I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm like, medicine is what I want. And so I think I just have to sort of bite the bullet and do it. And never looked back, was very happy with my decision. Yeah, I love everything about that story, other than obviously the fact of, you know, you losing your biological mother. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you when she was diagnosed initially? I was four years old. Oh, wow. Okay, very young. I, I was very young. And my brother was very, very young. He was three years younger than me. And so... 
really my brother was raised more so by my grandpa. And so their relationship is obviously has a very strong relationship with my grandparents. And that has also molded his temperament and his personality. It's really interesting seeing all that. Um, but I was four and it was, it's, it's, it's that window where you're growing. Um, you know, therapists talk about this. It's, um, it, it makes a big impact on sort of who you become when you're an adult in terms of just compassion, empathy, and, you know, resilience and dealing with things that have happened in your life and sort of what kind of person are you going to become? Are you going to become an avoidant person? Are you going to become, you know, an attached person? So it's interesting. Yeah. So very in like those, those very early years, most of your memories of your mom were probably, you know, going to doctor visits and whatnot. So yeah, absolutely formative years. And then I would assume your dad was probably working even more during those, those times. Correct. Yes. He was working a lot because he was the, you know, the sole provider and, um, it's interesting. Like I remember my mom, you know, she had no hair at one point and, you know, things were tough, but there was my favorite memory of her is um, she got different, like these individually packed chocolates and she played scavenger hunt with me in, in the master bedroom. So that's actually the the best memory I have of her. And that's sort of how I remember her. Um, yes. I remember like obviously the days when she'd be crying or she just didn't really want to socialize with anybody because she was in pain. But I just, I don't know. I don't know if those are repressed memories now, but for me, I remember the good stuff, you know, and yeah. I, yeah. You really took that pain and like turned it, in, it. It's alchemy. You took something that was not a good situation. And now it's, it's really informing a lot of your decisions as an adult, what you did in your career and honestly, how you're helping people today. So I think that's amazing. I also love the conversation that your, your dad's new wife had with you as well of, yeah, you're going to regret this in, you know, a decade or two, because I find that very commonly especially with females is there is an added layer of that decision making of how long is this going to take and i could be painting with a broad brush here but i find that you know young males don't factor that in as much to their decision making of how long something will take but i find that females will because of you know societal expectations of here's when you're supposed to get married here's when you're supposed to have children and it i think it does lead to a lot of people regretting a decade or two out of the time passed anyways, I should have just done what I wanted to with my career. Absolutely. I mean, even when I was in residency at Penn State, we had a 50 year old that was in our residency program. He was a multimillionaire tech um, guy and, you know, was just always wanted to be a doctor, but just went the tech route. And then eventually when he had the money, he's like, you know what, I'm going to take my MCATs and I'm going to apply to med school. And he applied to med school and he was so happy. He was such a good doctor. You know, he said like, decades of experience dealing with patients, communicating with well, clients, I would say, and was just very good at relaying messages and information, which translated into him being a great doctor. And so for me, I'm happy with the decision. I was also very fortunate and continue to be very fortunate that, you know, within our culture, yes, there is pressure to get married and, you know, have children. But my parents, fortunately, have never, ever ever done that with me they've always been like we want you to be first and foremost independent and not being not relying on anybody because at the end of the day you just don't know what can happen and we just never want you being in a situation where you are financially dependent on somebody else and so they're very happy with sort of where I've become and even my sister now she's in med school so this is sort of their their path is if we are you know if we leave this world, you know, our kids will be fine. They will be financially stable on their own. The partners will come, you know, at the end of the day, that will happen. But is their financial security going to be there? And are they going to be independent individuals and happy in their life and have accomplished all their dreams? 
Yeah, I completely agree. I remember my grandma used to say to me that uh, everything else can be taken away from you, but your education really can't. And that's exactly what it is with a lot of people, you know, whether you make career decisions based on your relationship and things of that nature, all that stuff could just fizzle away and die out. But you going and completing your MCATs and getting your MD, like that's yours forever. And it's the only thing you actually can control. So I'm so glad that they pushed you in that direction. And now look at it. Your your younger sister is going to, to into medicine as well. Is Would you say that's partly because of the career path you took? Or was she always like, I wanted to go into medicine as well? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's some influence there, but she is a very empathetic, compassionate type person. I see her being in healthcare. Did I know it was going to be doctor or nurse or some other, you know, allied healthcare field? I wasn't sure, but she just, she has that personality and I, I could see those traits in her that would make her a very, very good doctor. And so I always knew she was going to go in healthcare. I don't know how much I influenced that, but um, definitely, she's definitely following her dreams, which I'm happy about. That's great. I guess let's fast forward now. Once you made the decision to go to med school, where did you actually complete your your med school as well as your residency? Yeah, so I actually went to St. George's um, in Grenada. That's where I did med school. That was my first two years was basic sciences. And then my third year and fourth year were in New York City. And so I lived in Brooklyn Park Slope and worked at various different hospitals in New York, Methodist Hospital, Lutheran Hospital. I worked at Beth Israel Hospital, which was in Manhattan. And so, you know, accomplished my dream of living in New York for two years, which is really nice. And then we, you know, we're all very nervous. We're applying for residency. And I don't know if you know much about the residency matching process, but it's pretty much you rank your top choices and then it becomes sort of like a lottery. Like, let's see if they rank you number one and you rank them number one, you end up matching into that program. And at that point, as much as I wanted to live in New York, I had ranked Penn State as my top choice. And that was because of the sports medicine program. I was very interested in sports medicine and um, they had a great sports medicine program. They were very academic based at that point. I was also interested in research and potentially, you know, publishing, publishing articles and research. And so I was like, you know, they have a great library, they have great resources. And for me, the other thing I had to take into consideration is are they going to sponsor a J-1 waiver for me? Because I am Canadian, so I didn't have American citizenship. And so luckily I matched to my top choice and I ended up going to Penn State, which was great. And um, did that for approximately three years and then decided to stay in the United States because I was I finished my American Board of Family Medicine and had th- at that point had decided, you know, do I want to go back to Canada now or do I want to wait? And so there was a few reasons why I decided to stay in the U.S. and work in Buffalo. Um, number one was because I still had loans to pay back and making, you know, getting paid in U.S. dollar made more sense for me. And so the, I mean, the exchange was very much in my favor when I was in Buffalo. And so I would just move that money over and I was able to pay my loans back a lot quicker. And so that was number one. Number two was I wanted to come back to Canada on an independent, unrestricted license. I didn't want to restrict my scope. And if you go through certain other pathways where you're, you know, being supervised under somebody, your scope of practice is limited to the person who does your supervision. So I wanted to be the person that could do anything I wanted when I came back to Canada in terms of procedures, because I love procedures. I wanted to be able to do women's health procedures, dermatological procedures, sports medicine procedures. And for me to find a supervisor that did all that would have been challenging, I feel. And so I decided I'm just going to do the independent pathway. I always knew I wanted to eventually come back to Canada or at minimum have both my licenses, US and Canada, just to have both doors open. 
And so I always did my examinations with my US Emily. I always did the Canadian equivalent exam, like that sort of matched up with that time. And that was during my residency. And then I did my final exam, the MCQE2. And about three months later, after applying to the CPSO, I got my independent license. And so then a couple months after that, I started working part-time in Canada and while I was still in Buffalo. And eventually, you know, had that conversation in Buffalo where, you know, I'm going to be making the move to Canada. My contract was up in September. I decided not to renew and moved to Canada full time September 2020, right in the middle of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the path. But I do yeah. really like that you decided, number one, obviously, the paying off the student loans is huge because then you're not burdened with that for sort of a, a long time. And it not just financially, it sort of mentally closes that chapter of your life. Okay, I'm no longer a student. Now I'm a full doctor. I'm practicing. Um, but yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, you also get paid more in the States for almost the same work, correct? So that is where, so people believe that. And I think in some States, yes. So if you are doing, let's say family medicine, and then you're also moonlighting in the emergency department, you could make quite a bit of money. The problem with me was I was on an H1B visa. So I was restricted. I could only do the the work at the facility that sponsored my visa. So I had restrictions. I was, you know, asked to apply for the green card and I was on that route. I decided, you know, not to do it because I wanted to move back to Canada. Now, in retrospect, I probably should have gotten my green card. Um, but for me, if you're also, if you're in Texas, you know, there's the, in, there's no income tax. So you, there's a lot more opportunity to make money. Also, if you're working for certain organizations, like Kaiser is a very, very big organization in the United States. You've got a lot of perks working for them. Yes, the salary goes high. Um, but again, I was a little bit restricted because of my visa. So for me, I am doing better here as a Canadian where I have no limitations where I could work, what I could do, open up my own clinic not open up my own clinic. You know, I, I just have a lot more options here. However, had I had a green card there, would I make more money? Possibly. I, I just, I'm not sure because I never had that opportunity. Yeah, fair enough. But you do have like this complete autonomy over your practice now, which to a certain extent is priceless of being able to practice exactly how you want, work with who you want. And so, yeah, it's very hard to put a price tag on that. Plus you're close to family now. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's fast forward to today. Could you walk me through sort of your your day-to-day -day work at both Echo Valley Medical as well as Vivacity? Yeah, so my day-to-day -day does, it used to change quite a bit because I was doing a lot of stuff as of a couple months ago. I was doing, you know, cold and flu clinic because we were just having so many patients with RSV, flu, and even still COVID. And so I was doing that. And then I had my family practice. Then I was working at an urgent care downtown Toronto because I love you know, more of the high risk, like homelessness and like dealing with that type of medicine I enjoyed. And I was also doing a ton of telemedicine still. So I was just doing a lot. So every day, my day was a little bit more different, which I kind of liked. I love the variety of it, but then it was burning me out. And so I had to decide how do I sort of, you know, I had a five-year plan that I want to go into aesthetics. This is my long-term plan. And how do I sort of shift away from all of this stuff that I'm doing and get more into sort of what I want to set my life up for the next five years. And for me, that was really just focusing on one or two things and making sure that I had weekends off. Cause I was, there was a point where I was working seven days a week for months and it was exhausting. And, you know, my friends and family were like, you have to take a day off. You have to take a day off. But during COVID it was just, it was challenging to do that because other doctors were sick. And so you had to take coverage and it's really hard for me to say no when someone asked me to come in, but it was taking a toll on me. And so 
And that's when I started getting into all this other stuff like clothes and painting just to sort of, you know, de-stress a little bit. But for now, I feel like I have a much better grasp on things. I have two clinics. My one clinic is a family practice clinic and I have uh, that with two other doctors. We are hiring more and it's a family health organization. Very, very happy at that clinic. It's actually a seven minute drive from my place. And um, it's, again, I've rostered patients, so I am their family doctor. Um, and But I also wanted to incorporate the aesthetics. Now, the issue with family medicine is the clinic is so busy that you don't always get the opportunity to do procedures. The procedures take a long time. And so for me, and I, and I said, and I was very, you know, open and honest about this with the other doctors. I'm like, I'm losing my procedure skills because I am here. I'm, I'm sitting, I'm talking to patients, which I have no problem with, but I don't want to lose my procedural competencies. I worked really hard for that stuff. And so that's when mm -hmm. I got into surgical assist at Etobicoke general hospital. Cause I just didn't want to lose the, you know, the, the procedures and, then I was like, you know what, aesthetics is my five-year goal. Why don't I start working towards that? And so I actually started looking at clinics and sort of thinking of opening up my own place. But then there was a doctor, um, Dr. Nick White, who I work with now, who I had actually met three years ago when I first started at the urgent care. And me and him had been, you know, colleagues ever since. He was doing different things. I was doing different things. But he just, you know, we just opened the clinic January 14th. And he calls me into the clinic. And he's like, I really want you to come on board with this clinic and really just help me grow this. And it's exactly what I wanted to do. And so now I'm balancing both still being able to have like a day off, like usually a Sunday. And so yeah, I just feel like I'm getting closer to sort of what my five year plan is. It took a while to get here again, moving here September 2020. It's now, you know, April 2023. But it's sort of exactly what I wanted. I get to do a ton of procedures and I'm not losing that procedural competency anymore. And yeah, so I'm getting a good balance now of what I want. Yeah. You're really getting the best of both worlds where you have like your, your steady patient base. And those are the people that you're working with on a regular basis, but you're still getting your procedural work done and keeping your skills sort of sharp. Um, and then working towards that five-year goal or realistically, you just brought it closer and it, it's already here now. Um, Maybe could you do me a favor? And I guess for a lot of the people who might be listening, because most of them are going to be younger, you know, doctors or maybe even people in residency. What's one thing that you would say was a major surprise to you, at least when you started practicing here in Canada that maybe wasn't taught in medical school or you weren't prepared for, so to speak? Wasn't prepared for. Um, I think I think the the business. I think the business of medicine, I, I have no knowledge about the business of medicine. Like, and I wish, you know, in medicine, you know, there was a course of like being a medical entrepreneur and like, how do you go about doing that? Or I just being able to network with those people because when you're done, and of course, a lot of us work in hospital, you know, work for a hospital or work in a clinic, but what if you want to open your own clinic? You just don't have the knowledge there. And so that's another good reason why I like working with Nick, because he's also teaching me a lot of the business of the clinic, which I appreciate. It's sometimes finding a mentor that's just going to mentor you through it. You know, what it takes to do the bookkeeping, the marketing, just, you know, figuring out the bottom line and like what you need to do to, you know, get the clients and and pricing. And it's just very different. And I never and I never learned that. And so and I was reading a lot of books. I, I mean, I, again, I was I was I was with my real real estate agent and I was looking for a clinic and I was like, I'm just going to do it. That's my personality. I just jump into something and I, I know I could do it. I just have to do it. I'm lucky because I have a family that are entrepreneurs. My father is an entrepreneur. You know, he started off with the taxi and the truck driving, but he has built something amazing. 
And now he has several businesses and he was always like, you could do this on your own. You don't need to work for anybody. There's nothing mm. like having autonomy. But the difference is, even though now, you know, I'm working in a clinic and it's like the family practice clinic and it's not my clinic, I have full autonomy. I get to do what I want. I set my schedule. Um, and so I just, yes, I wish in medicine. And and I, and I think this is for a lot of doctors. I think they need to teach business and also finance. We're not the best at, you know, being smart about our money all the time. Like I know a lot of doctors that like, you know, as soon as they got their first paycheck, and it was like a nice car, like really, really nice clothes. I mean, I did that. I went completely crazy. I wasn't able to afford that stuff before at all. I would just like, look, I'd be like that window shopper. Like one day I'll be able to afford this. And then I also went crazy the first year. Um, of course, I've learned from my mistakes and, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. But yes, financing and business, I think, is a very important thing that is missing in medicine um, because that's a big part of it. Yeah, there's so many entrepreneurial paths you could take as a doctor, regardless of the discipline whether you are a physician or an optometrist or a dentist, I have clients now who actually don't even operate in their profession and they just run four or five clinics and they're really just business owners who went to med school. Um, and so there is that pathway that you could go down. And I've heard that they're starting to implement more of that into the curriculum at certain universities. So it would be really nice to see that. And as well with the finance, I joke with a lot of my clients that, I have like a webinar that I walk them through of what to do with your first paycheck because you go from, you know, earning zero dollars, really, maybe in residency, you make like 50 grand a year, depending on what your uh, specialty is. And then all of a sudden you're making half your annual salary in a month. <laughs> and I always tell them that the first thing to do with your paycheck is go and blow it. You've delayed gratification for so long. You're going to burst if you don't go on that shopping spree or treat yourself. My only rule is don't get anything with a payment right away. Don't go and get that fancy car. If you want a Rolex, go absolutely go do that. But don't go and get the Mercedes Benz G-Wagon for, you know, $2,000 a month because that's going to hurt you for a few months after. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's nice to hear, though, anyone, you, actually just most of the guests opening up about that stuff because everyone goes through it. Everyone makes those mistakes. Shameless plug. That's what we're here to help with. And really what this podcast is to do is to try to educate, you know, doctors on the importance of finance and what they should be doing right away. Um. And I guess my next question is, now that you're doing medical aesthetics, where do you see the future of that going? How large is that industry going to get? Because it is relatively new here in Canada. I'm not sure about the States, but in Canada, I feel like it's a relatively new sort of field that a lot of uh, doctors are venturing into. I think I think it's going to continue to explode, um, to be quite honest. And I think there's the good and the bad about it. I mean, Europe and Asia, I feel like are a lot more advanced when it comes to that. North America is a little bit lagging. The United States is, is, is pretty good. You know, there's a lot of plastic surgeons in California, New York that are also incorporating non-surgical options, which is the aesthetics. And I think the reason that it's going to do so well is because it's not as expensive as surgery. And a lot of the times, you know, you start early enough, you can get those results to an extent. I mean, there's obviously certain indications that are, you know, you're going to have to get surgery, but that's why a lot of these surgeons are incorporating that into their um, practice because medical aesthetics, a lot of it is preventative, especially when you're taking into consideration the neurotoxins and things like that. And also, you know, the bad side is, yeah, with social media, you know, a lot more people want to look a certain way. And so I think that is another area that I still struggle with a little bit in the field um but th that's a big field i mean i feel like a lot more people want to look a particular way and a lot of it is and that's the art of aesthetics and i think it's 
but that's also it's also the thing I struggle with a little bit in aesthetics. Like I'm a very big proponent of neurotoxins and my my aesthetic practice is actually very heavy medical still. Like I do a lot of lump and bump removals. I do, you know, keloid scar removals, um, a lot of like plasma, um, like PRP like your platelet rich plasma injections, whether it's for hair, whether it's for joint, you know, I did it for my patient who was a ex basketball player, he needed it in his knee. And we're going to do like pre and post MRIs and all that sort of stuff to see how he's doing. But I still love the medical part. Um, but yes, there is a is a fine line in aesthetics. And I think a lot of it is just patient education. But I, I think if you're very good at what you do, you understand skin architecture, you know, you could help people in so many different ways. Um, without kind of going down that rabbit hole of just, you know, really just running to change somebody's appearance. I think there's a lot of education involved. And I think that's just the kind of provider I would like to be in this in this business. Yeah, I think you answered what my next question was going to be, because not myself, but from guests and even some clients, there has been a criticism of this new wave of, you know, more and more people going into medical aesthetics there. I guess the argument is that it's taking away from, you know, mandatory treatments that people need to be going through and there's less doctors to to sort of facilitate those treatments compared to more of these elective procedures. Do you have any sort of rebuttal to that or any way to sort of talk about medical aesthetics and, and speak to how it's actually improving patient care uh, across the board for Canada? Yeah, absolutely. I think regardless whether, whether there are providers or not, patients are gonna want the elective procedures. And so it's a question of, do you want them just going to someone who's had a two day course in training, or do you want to go to someone who's had four years of training, three years of residency, isn't just going to start injecting somebody's face until they've done multiple courses and they've trained a lot. Like, I mean, there's a lot of courses out there that are a weekend course. And all of a sudden you're expected to be, you know, uh, an expert in like botulinum toxin and filler. And I, to me, that that is just so incomprehensible. I don't understand that. And especially for me, because I understand the anatomy of the face and I'm like, there's so many things that can go wrong, especially when it is your malpractice insurance. You know, you're thinking like, the first thing in medicine is do no harm to the patient. And I feel like when you when you don't, maybe if there's not as much of an education on into that, you don't think as much about the complications when you really know the arteries and the fat pads in the face and the muscles and the nerves and what could go wrong, you're going to be that much more cautious. So when I like, I mean, I'm still every day I'm training, like, yes, I have my certifications and everything, but every Saturday, every Thursday evening, I'm in a three hour course and I'm just learning new things all the time. Cause I'm like, there's always going to be new things to learn in May. I'm going to Lyon France because I want to work on cadavers and get really, really good with what I'm doing, because for me, this is a form of art, but also science, like I don't want to cause any harm to my patients. And so I think a lot of it is just, you know, more doctors, yes, are going into it. And yes, unfortunately, that is taking away from family practice. And we already have a shortage of family doctors. And it is something that I see because I have patients rostering to me. And, you know, during COVID, their family doctors retired, a lot of them, that's the number one story. It's my, my doctor retired during COVID, I have no doctor. I haven't seen anyone for a year and a half. You know, I had to call telemed to get my blood pressure medication, my diabetes medication. There was a week where I had no medication. And yeah, of course, it breaks my heart to hear that. But medicine is just it's the way it's set up here. It's and just unfortunately, I'm going to say it. And I don't know if this is going to end up like negatively coming back to me, but we're just not compensated for how much work is required in this field. 
I, my patience, I mean, especially after COVID was very difficult. Even now, I mean, we're still, I mean, COVID is still here, but it's not, it's post lockdown and mental health is just has skyrocketed. Like every patient, you know, that I see, it's something related to either mental health or, you know, joint pain. And, you know, I do the workup and I'm looking to make sure that there's no autoimmune conditions. You know, they're not on any medications that can cause muscle and joint issues and, you know, anything like that. But a lot of the times it's related to their mental health. They're just having aches and pains. They're sitting in my office. They're just, they're having a tough time financially, you know, just so many different factors. And I cannot rush that patient out the door. That is not a 10 minute visit for me. That is a 25 minute visit. But then I have a waiting room that's full of patients. And then next person is upset that they had to wait 15, 20 minutes. And at the end of the day, I just, but you're expected to see uh, when you have a roster of 800 patients, you know, they need to be seen in a timely manner. I don't let my patients, at least I try not to. And I talk to my admin about this. I'm like, I don't want people waiting two to three weeks to see me. Like I want a reasonable appointment time. And then of course I have my urgent slots for my urgent patients. But I mean, Gertag, like, it's difficult. Like mm-hmm. it's, you I chose a family health organization to do value-based care so that I have my patients, I know them very well, and I can give them quality care. This is why I got out of the fee-for-service. And the fee-for-service, yes, you can make a lot more money, but you're like five minutes with a patient. That's not the kind of doctor I want to be. That's not the kind of doctor I was trained to be in Buffalo. In Buffalo, I worked at a federally qualified health center, had my set of patients, and I loved it. And I'm doing that here as well. It's just after the pandemic, I think people are struggling. And I think a lot of it is because we just don't have the mental health support here in this country. And so what ends up happening is it falls on the family doctor, which is fine. I have no problem treating my patients if they have mental health issues, because once you improve their mental health, everything else sort of starts falling into place. But it can't all be on the family doctor. There, We need to have a lot more mental health support. Like I should not have to make a referral to a psychiatrist and it takes six months. Like, especially if I have a patient that has schizophrenia. So there's a whole nother side to it that is challenging. And I feel like more help is needed. Yes, family doctors are needed, but mental health is needed as well. Absolutely. I think I fully agree with you there where you are not compensated adequately um, based on the education, the training and how difficult the job is, just period. Because I think... Patients also want it both ways, where they want to come in and, you know, see their family doctor on time. But then when they're in front of you, they also want you to take the time and talk to them about their their issues. And yeah, the 10 minute slot, it's going to take a lot longer than that to talk about someone's health history Um, because everyone's so complicated. There's so much that goes into it. And you take a very holistic approach, which I love, where you look at people's, you know, socioeconomic status, their culture and all these things, and then factor that into your decision making. And that can't be done in 10 minutes. It just, it, it straight up cannot get done in 10 minutes. And so I think patients also need to be a little bit more, what's the word I'm looking for? They need to be a little bit more mindful that, hey, this person just saw someone like this right before me. It's going to take a little bit longer. If they're a little bit late, that's okay. As well as the fact that they have eight other patients, 800 other patients, you know, it's not just me. But it's so difficult for, for family doctors because everything does truly fall on your plate. Something can't get handled elsewhere. It all goes back to the family doctor and you're the one who has to call them and do all that extra work after hours and not really get compensated for it. I know here in BC, we just passed sort of the laws to make sure that doctors are compensated for their time. And it's not perfect, but it is a step in the right direction. Um, And I guess on that note, I wanted to ask you about how difficult is it 
as a doctor to toe that line between being professional and efficient, but also empathetic and really taking your time with your patients? How do you toe that line? Because you know you have a waiting room full of other people, but you also want to be there for this person. Yeah, so I I do struggle with that because I like I have a lot of geriatric patients you're over the age of 65 and a lot of doctors have like a one issue policy I cannot do that with a 70 year old patient like I mean just imagine what it took them to even get to the clinic so I'm not going to send my 70 year old out by saying well sorry we're just going to deal with the one issue that you have and the next time you come in again and you talk to me I cannot do that in good conscience and if that means that I need to spend more time with the patient and that's what I do so what I have started doing in my clinic to sort of help this is I have talked to my admin staff. I try to get two rooms where I'm working out of. I'll have one in one room and then I'll send a message while I'm still with my one patient that's taking a little bit longer. And I'll communicate with my admin staff through the direct messaging through the through PS suite, which is our electronic medical record. And I just say, get the next patient ready, get their vitals done. At least we're doing something on them and just let them know that I'm going to be five or 10 minutes. Or if they're, you know, in, like they need a pap smear or a breast exam, like go get them ready in a gown, have them sit comfortably. I'll be there, you know, when I can. So far that's worked fine. I haven't really had a whole lot of patients be upset, but the issue becomes when like, yes, a 10 minute visit turns into a 40 minute visit. Like, and, and I have patients that, you know, I have patients that are living in shelters and they need a lot of help. I cannot just rush those patients out. I mean, it's, it's difficult. And on top of that, some of them are crying in my office because they're going through a tough time. And, who are they going to get their help from? To me, they're looking at me as I'm going to give them help today. Like I want my patients, you know, if they're coming to the clinic sad or distressed or, you know, in pain, I want them to leave with some improvement. The last thing I want to say, sorry, one issue. And then they leave feeling like they just didn't get the care because I have been treated by doctors, good doctors and bad doctors, you know, and it, it makes a big difference um, how you're treated. And unfortunately, because I do that, it does take a toll on me. And so that's why like, you know, we're trying to figure out ways to deal with it, but it's just tough. Cause like I said, this, I didn't see this as much before the pandemic as I've been seeing it after the pandemic. And I think a lot of it is because people also didn't see doctors for two years. So all of their issues just piled up, you know? And so now we're sort of trying to deal with all of it. Like we're just trying to fix it. And then eventually my hope is that things will start getting better where, you know, chronic issues are improving. Um, and then we could just start dealing with acute things. So I know it's like growing pains for the first two years, um, just because of COVID and everything, but I'm hoping things will get better. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no perfect policy, but I, the one complaint issue is, is really difficult for me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I agree where I think I've had this even with my mom, where she goes in to talk about one thing and the doctor's like, yeah, I'm sorry. You can't, we can't have a conversation about the other thing. Now, mind you, I'm also not saying that's bad. It's just, it is what it is where, yeah, I understand that the, the GP has other patients and he just doesn't have the time to talk about all these things. Um, you mentioned one thing that I wanted to talk about and you've talked about it before in other interviews, but what do you think the importance is of, you know, empathy or at least an awareness of social factors in medicine? Because there's obviously the, the physiological factors, but there's also so much that is around a patient in terms of their environment, their socioeconomic status, their culture you know, their relationship with their family, how, how heavy do you weigh those in your practice? And do you think that's something that needs to be done more in medicine? Because I know when you're in school, you can't get emotionally, you're at least taught to not get emotionally invested in the patient. 
how do you weigh out those social factors without that emotional sort of attachment to the patient? So I guess there's two questions there. Yeah, so for me, the, em- the empathy component and taking into consideration social uh, the social factors, that to me takes precedence. Because I think at the end of the day, your environment is going to dictate how you're feeling, whether it's tightening your pain or your depression or your anxiety. I think it has a big part to play. And I see it with my patients all the time. I have a lot of patients that, you know, come in, they're in pain, they're depressed. But then when you, but but again, part of that entire intake is figuring out what's your family life? What's your relationship with your partner? Who are you going home to? Because that is who you're spending like 90% of your time, especially when you're working from home, like almost hundred percent of the time you were with that person. And time and time again, I always find out that there is something going on outside that is making the medical part a lot worse. The medical part is is not that difficult to treat if we could just control the mental. But what I find is just, you know, like I had a patient, like, I, have, I mean, I have so many patients, but I had, I had this one patient and, you know, she's, she's 91 years old, so incredibly healthy. And I call her one day just to check up on her. I'm like, you know, I haven't seen you in three months. I hope you're doing well. Cause this is when I was, I came back from my vacation and she just starts crying. She's like, I just feel like my life's falling apart. I don't feel like how I felt before. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to book an appointment and you're going to come talk to me about this. And so I booked her in the next day. She comes in, we do her vitals. We do everything. I go over all of her blood work because I'd ordered everything. And I was like, you know what? She was so worried about Alzheimer's. She's like, I don't want to get Alzheimer's her biggest fear is getting Alzheimer's. And I was like, you know what, let's do a cognitive assessment. Let's see where you're at. Let's see if there's some component of dementia there. And the whole time she's just very, like being very negative when I'm asking her questions and I'm just sitting there observing. And this, this was a 45 minute visit, but was a 15 minute appointment, but it took 45 minutes because again, she's 91, you know, she's crying. And, and then I start talking about her life. I'm like, okay, so what's going on at home? Who are you going home to? What is your, what are the things you like doing? Like for her, it's, you know, she used to go to church and she used to do a lot of um, uh, bingo night with her friends at church. But then all of a sudden, I think something happened with her transportation where she's not able to go. So that's been one major factor is her socialization, her social circle, you know, and the things that she liked doing are no longer, they're not there anymore. Um, and then I think another issue was she's not as close to her family as she was before. So people that normally she would talk to, like her daughters, um, you know, it just kind of drifted a little bit. And so you get into this stuff and then it came out once she did her full assessment, her mental status was fine, but her issue was she was depressed. And when you're depressed and you're a geriatric patient, it manifests very differently. Um, it's not the same as depression in an adolescent, right? Geriatric depression is very, very difficult. I could have just brushed it off and like, okay, you're, you're fine. Like this is, you know, you don't have Alzheimer's, like this is okay, but you got to show the patient objectively, no, your memory is fine. Your concentration is fine. Your short-term, long-term recall, recall is fine, but I think you're struggling a little bit and I think you're sad. And I think you're sad because your life has changed. And so what we try to do is we find tra- we tried to find a transportation in the community so she could get back to church. She could go back and start socializing. But this is not a 10-minute visit. Like if you're trying to get to the bottom of this, this is a 45-minute visit. But this patient left the clinic smiling. Like she felt like she got an answer, you know? And so empathy is huge because your environment plays a big part in how you're going to feel. And time and time again, that has come up. You know, mm-hmm. I have patients that are alcoholics and a lot of the times it's stuff that's going on at home if you don't address that stuff at home how do you 
expect to address the mental health and the alcoholism, you know, because that is what they're going back to. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but I fully agree with you where so much of your environment really impacts how you're feeling. Like <laughs> I live in Vancouver and it's pretty cloudy all the time and the sun is out for one day and I notice it with clients that you're happier than you were last week. And it's just the sun. And it's like, so now imagine the people that you care about in your house, maybe you guys aren't getting along or yeah, if you are a geriatric patient and you know, you just can't go and see your friends anymore. That's going to have a huge toll on you. You just sit at home all day, you watch TV, you don't get out. And it's like you said, it's going to manifest in other ways, physically and mentally. So it's so important. And I'm so glad that you actually take that route. It is difficult. Like you said, that 15 minute, you know, consult turned into a 45 minute consult. So it's tough. And this kind of leads perfectly into the next question that I wanted to ask you, because when I'm most of my clients are younger doctors, you know, fresh out of school, up to mid career. And I find that early on, they're very optimistic about the profession. They're so excited about it. It's new. It's exciting. And over the years, they slowly start to get burnt out. The profession loses its zest. They get a little bit jaded. How do you mitigate burnout and, I guess, avoid getting jaded? How do you stay excited about life and the profession? So, yeah, I've had moments where I've been very much burnt out and it was mostly during 2020 and 2021. And for me, it's a lot of, there was moments, yes, where I was getting irritable, which are just all the symptoms of burnout. You know, you're irritable, you're like, you're getting frustrated and you're just like, why am I, it just takes away from you being a good doctor. That That's not the kind of doctor I would want to see. I wouldn't want my patient seeing me in that situation. And when your personality starts changing, then there's something wrong. And that's when I was like, you know what, I need to start cutting back. I need to make changes. But for me, I tried to do things to sort of, I'm a very creative person at heart. Very, very creative. Yes, my job is very logical and analytical and all that sort of stuff. But I love art and and that sort of stuff. And so for me, it was like, find my love again. You know, like I love medicine. I don't want to fall out of love with it but I have to do something to sort of fill my cup a little bit. And for me, that was spending time with my family. That was, you know, my amazing friends spending time with them. It was going for walks along the water. It was, you know, I started painting. I just like, randomly went to Michael's one day, got a canvas, got some paint and just started painting. And just, you know, it, like I started actually making clothes when I was in residency, it was 80 hour work weeks and I was 80 to 90, I would say. And I was burning out and, I started sewing clothes and that really helped me. Like, I just, I feel like I just got that zest back. I'm like, you know, when I get to come home, I'm not just like watching TV or like, I'm doing something that I love doing. So for me, when I would make a garment, it just made me so happy. And then I was able to kind of recharge and continue working. And so that's what I do now. Like for me, like I have my sewing room in my place. I have my you know, easel and I have my canvases. I'm not really inspired right now to paint anything, but I will be. But I love doing that. And for me, a lot of it is friends and family. So I try I try very hard not to burn out. And I think now that I finally have a little bit of a more of a set schedule, I could really allocate my weekends to do that stuff. But yeah, as soon as you start burning out, the quality of you as a physician does decline. And that's just not a good thing because people are coming to you and I just put myself in their shoes. I've been a patient before. I've been hospitalized before for weeks. Like I've been in this situation where I've been a patient. And the last thing you want is to go to the person that you're going to for help. And they are just negative or they are just not like that's at your lowest low. You're seeing a doctor. Like, let's mm -hmm. just be honest. Yeah. You're, you're not in a good place when you're seeing a doctor, unless you're coming in for an annual checkup. 
you're not in a good place. There's something wrong. And that person that you're going to see, I hope makes you feel better leaving that clinic. And so I just think about it that way. I'm like, listen, I'm going through stuff, but this person made an appointment. There's clearly something wrong and they want something addressed. Right. So I think a lot of it is just putting yourself in that patient's shoes and just understanding how would I want my doctor to be? Yeah. I, I love hearing that you're uh, I've heard it before from, from clients, but the way you put it of when you see a doctor, I would say other than childbirth, it's not a good time. <laughs> Anytime you're seeing a doctor, it's something bad or something that could be bad that you're worried about. Anxiety levels are high. Even if it's just a general checkup, you do your blood work. And you're like, I hope nothing comes up in there. I hope everything's okay. And so, yeah, you are seeing your doctor in whatever capacity, whether it's dentist, optometrist, physician, you name it. You're seeing them when something's wrong and, and emotions are heightened. And having your physician think how you think is just such a blessing. I, I think your patients are extremely lucky to have you that you put on your hat of, I'm going to be my best self when I'm in front of this person to help make their day a little bit better or to help calm those nerves down. So on behalf of your patients and I guess the Canadian healthcare system, I appreciate how you look at things. And I, I can't imagine how hard it must be to do that. Cause yeah, you, you know, might be having a terrible day heading into work and then you got to put on your happy face and be like, all right, I got to be here for my patients. And then you take that happy face off and you go back home. But it's also great that you have these hobbies. I, um, I guess to, to share a similar note, one of my clients, he just started practicing jujitsu, um, after work. And he's like, I was like, why, why do you do that? Cause you're burnt out. Jiu-jitsu is extremely difficult. It's mentally very straining. Um, and he said, it's one of those professions or sorry, hobbies that makes you focus solely on that moment. Mm -hmm. I can't think about my patients. I can't think about something else. I have to be fully present there. And I think those are the best hobbies. Sewing seems to be like that. Painting seems to be like that. Anything creative forces you to be there fully um, in that space. And so that's why I think they're so great and why they actually relieve a lot of stress. Like for 30 minutes to an hour, you don't think about anything else. And that in and of itself is just very rejuvenating. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. Um, I guess to shift gears here and sort of uh, start winding the episode down, because I know we're coming up on our time here. Um, I have three standard questions that I ask all of our guests. Um, the first one is, who would you say is your biggest inspiration? And again, this could be one person, it could be multiple people, but who is that for you? It's my father. Yeah. It's my father, always has been my father. The things that he's been through in life is, you know, I get emotional thinking about it, but he's been through a lot. And he is like the epitome of resilience. And so whenever something happens to me, I'm just like, you know, th what this, this man came to a, a set, like a new country, had nothing you know, and now he has, he's lost, he lost the love of his life, you know, at one point in his life, you know, lost his job and, you know, went through all that. And then, um, you know, was able to like raise a family, a happy family, a family that, you know, two doctors and one like entrepreneur, like he's done a good job. And, and not just that, I think he's my hero because I think he's changed a lot. Like, when you think about Indian families, you know, we don't always talk about our feelings. We don't talk about things that bother us. We don't talk about anxiety, depression, PTSD. We just don't talk about it. a lot of that stuff is repressed. And my dad is so open about mental health where I could talk to him about my feelings. I could tell him exactly how I feel. And we have our moments where we go, he has like a farmhouse and he created a little area in the back and he's like, let's go have a talk. And we just talk, we just talk for an hour. And we talk for an hour about everything. We talk about life. We talk about relationships. We talk about work. We talk about how we want our future to look like. He talks about retirement and what he wants to do and where he wants to travel. And he, you know, he 
like he meditates and he's just so like just from someone who's like typical Indian didn't never mm-hmm. talked about his feelings to turning into like you know someone who you feel comfortable sharing anything with like that like just his transition as a human I think that is heroic to me and I and I just he's an amazing person mm, I love that it is extremely rare to hear that especially Punjabi dad to talk about his feelings like that doesn't happen and then to do that with his daughter that is uh that is amazing i think that trumps all the not to discredit everything else he's done building a business losing his partner still raising a great family but that seems like the hardest out of all the things for someone of you know where he came from to do so that's awesome to hear um my next question is what's next for you personally as robbie and then i guess professional as dr bunnywell Personally, I would love to create my clothing line that is mm. on hold right now. Um, I have all my sketches in my in my room. I just I, I, I just need to feel inspired. And then also I just I got really busy with the work part of everything. Mm. And so I haven't really done it, but I need to get back into that because I'm like I'm getting that energy again now and I'm like excited. So I do want to create my own clothing line just as one line. Nothing not for selling purposes, just for me that I did this. It was a dream of mine and I accomplished it. Um, and obviously continuing to just have amazing friends and just being very close to my family. Never want to lose those relationships. You know, at the end of the day, your relationships are the most important thing. And uh, professionally, I would say I just I just want to be the best in my field. And whether that's family practice, whether that's aesthetics, I just want to be the best. I want to, you know, I want to make people feel good. I want to make people like just you know, I just want to constantly be learning. I never want to become stagnant in, in my career. And so I think professionally, if I could just keep learning every single day, learn something new and just keep having that like desire to learn, I think that will just continue to propel me and make me make me successful. Yeah, that's great. I can completely relate to that where I just want to be the best. I'm absolutely obsessed with my job. Some would argue it's not healthy, but I actually listened to a, uh, it's like a meme or an Instagram reel the other day. And it's a gentleman named Alex Ramosi, someone I follow and listen to a lot. And he just talked about, he works like madman. And he was just talking about why is that unhealthy? Like, I like doing it. Why can I not do that? Why do you have this expectation that I should do less? Um, just because that's what society says. So I love that you're, you're in that field of constantly learning. Like, I think it was just yesterday, I'm spending a weekend going and training. You've done all your education, you've done everything, but you're still going back and doing more. So I love that. Um, I guess because this is the Dollars and Doctor show, the final question I ask is, in your opinion, what's the worst financial mistake you've made so far? And then on the flip side, what do you think is the best financial decision you've ever made so far? Worst decision I ever made financially, there's a lot. Um, but I would say most recently what really is I just blew a bunch of money at a, store, at a Christian Dior one day. Like I just, so much money. And I, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. And then, you know, I was, I was just in the excitement of it all. And, and I made a vow. I'm like, I'm never doing that again. Like ever. Like I have a collection of bags that I've acquired through the years and I really only wear one of the bags. And so that's when I started realizing, I'm like, you know, some of the bags are investments. Like some of them are good bags that have gone up in value, but I just don't see that value in material things. Like I used to five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, my, interest has shifted into real estate. Um, I, I, you know, always wanted to have real estate. That was my goal. I wanted to pay off my loans first and then everything else I saved, I really wanted to put it towards real estate. Um, and then I fortunately bought my place 
January. So I got my first place that was really exciting. And then I ended up purchasing another property. And so that was the best financial decision I made, regardless of how high mortgage rates are right now, but very, very happy with the real estate purchases I've made. And I hope to continue, you know, building my assets and diversifying and doing everything I can to just, you know, set myself and set my family up in the future. Yeah. Now you're speaking my language. Yeah. I, I, I obviously am a financial planner and we do stocks and real estate, but I lean more towards the real estate side. It's one of, I don't know, maybe that's the Punjabi in me. It's like more of a cultural thing, but it, uh, it's one of those assets that really, until we start populating another planet, we're not making any more real estate. It'll always really be valuable unless you're buying in like, you know, middle of nowhere, like Winnipeg or something. No offense to Winnipeg, but unless you're buying in Winnipeg. Um, and I think even with the the material things, I have heard that where bags appreciate from clients that they uh, you buy them for a certain amount and they do appreciate. Mind you, probably not the best investment, but it is interesting to see that. And I think it is a bit of a, a ebb and flow where maybe earlier on in your career, you do buy more of those material things. Like I said, it's almost like revenge spending for living like a broke student for like the first 30 years of your life. And then you go and buy all these things. And you're like, oh, maybe I don't need them. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I guess my final sort of question then is to wrap this up. Do you have any advice to, let's say, your fellow doctors, regardless of their discipline, um, or any advice to, you know, newer doctors who are fresh out of school or fresh out of residency? Yeah, it's just, um, I always, I, 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 I live by this. And if, for me, it's just don't take life so seriously. Like, because I used to take life so seriously. And, I, you know, I'm an overthinker. If something happens, I think about it all day, all day long. And it just affects my headspace and in a negative way. And so, you know, I've been through a very busy, like, last couple of years with work. And at the end of the day, I just, you know, you just shouldn't take it to accomplish your goals, do whatever you need to do. But just, you know, I guess being able to compartmentalize a little bit so it doesn't take, like, a toll on your mental health and just really just not taking it so seriously. At the end of the day, you know, we get so caught up and, oh, this happened, that happened at work, you know, nothing was going well today. But I mean, every day you get to wake up and you get to see stuff, you get to smell, you get to walk around, like just basic things that we take for granted. You know, someone that's been injured as much as I have in my life, you just take little things for granted that you, you just don't even realize how lucky you are to even be doing just even what we think is the bare minimum not everybody has that like you know and I just feel like just life is good you know just try to treat it like I guess look at it in a more positive like through a positive lens I know sometimes that's hard again going back to my patients if you have a very negative environment that you're living in I could imagine how hard it is I am very lucky I you know I, I live here and I come home and I, it's just me I just exhale not everybody has that some people walk into their house and it's just chaos and and it's devastating. And so that's why, you know, an environment's important. But I, it's just, you know, I just, I also, there's a part of me that just wishes it was easier for people to kind of change their circumstances. And that's not always the case. Um, but again, just, you know, you, you can help everybody to an extent, but you can't solve everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of it is just, just don't take it so seriously. When something goes wrong, just try to flip the script a little bit and, mm -hmm. you know, just come out thinking positively. Because the last thing you want is just to spiral and have a negative headspace because it will take a negative toll on you. Yeah. I think it's it's a great place to, or a great piece of advice for everyone. Because at the end of the day, we live in Canada. It's a great country. We're not, you know, 
in a cobalt mine in the Congo, you know, like we, we have a great life. We have healthcare, we have people we love and care about. And like you said, just the basic things like getting up out of your bed and walking to the bathroom is a huge privilege because some people need, you know, they need to hop in a wheelchair. They need support to even go from their bathroom to their, to their bed and back and forth. So just being grateful for those little things, I think is something that everyone can learn from my, myself included. So that's a great place to, to sort of end it. And I think amazing advice for everyone out there. So thank you so much, Robbie, for being on this. I know you're doing this on a Sunday. You could easily be doing other things like working on your, your clothing line. So thank you for taking the time and thank you for sharing all of your insights and your story with, with anyone who's going to be listening to this. Thank you so much for having me. And that concludes our 12th episode of the Dollars and Doctor Show. A big thank you to our guest, Dr. Robbie Bunawal, for coming on the podcast and sharing her stories and insights into medicine. If you'd like to learn more about Viva City Medical Center or get in touch with Dr. Bunawal, I've included all of her social media links in the description of this episode. So be sure to connect with her through all your social media applications. This episode was brought to you by White Coat Financial. Our goal at White Coat Financial is to change the financial planning industry by combining a fiduciary duty with a one-stop shop experience for our clients. If you're a Canadian doctor and you're looking for financial advice on mortgages, investing, insurance, taxes, or any other financial matters, visit our website, www.whitecoatfinancial.ca. On our website, you'll be able to schedule a free initial consultation to learn about how White Coat Financial can help you protect your income, grow your money, and live better. If you have any questions or feedback for us, you can email me directly at gurthage at whitecoatfinancial.ca. Thank you for your attention, thank you for your time, and thank you for your ongoing support. I look forward to speaking with you soon. The information contained in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and it is not to be taken as financial advice. While the host of this podcast is a registered financial planner, nothing contained in this podcast should be construed as financial advice. Before making any financial decisions, you should always consult with a financial professional about your unique circumstances and personal situation. The hosts and guests of this podcast are not responsible for any errors or omissions or for any actions taken based on the information provided in this podcast. It is the responsibility of the listener to do their own due diligence and make informed financial decisions.